Hello, I'm Dr. Dana gorzelani Mostak from Georgia College. And I'm Dr. Naomi Graber from the University of Georgia. Welcome to the all-new Tracks on the Trail podcast. Tracks on the Trail is a website where scholars, educators, journalists, students, and the general public can learn about American presidential campaign music and gain insight into how sound participates in forming candidate identity. The website includes a database cataloging the use of music in presidential elections, both from the official campaigns and from the general public. We also provide an extensive bibliography, scholarly essays, and classroom materials for all educational levels. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing experts on music and politics, both scholars and industry professionals, as well as providing up-to-the-minute analysis of the use of music in the 2020 campaign. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Christensen, an associate professor of musicology from Seton Hall University. Paul's book, Orchestrating Public Opinion, How Music Persuades in Television Political Ads for U.S. Presidential Campaigns 1952-2016, was published in 2018 by Amsterdam University Press. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So first off, can you tell me how you got interested in this subject? Sure. I came to it in a little bit of a roundabout way. My undergraduate training was in media, specifically television production, and I went to graduate school in musicology. My dissertation was on this really abstruse topic in Czech music, Janáček's theory of speech melody. So this dissertation was half linguistics, half musicology, and there were about three people in the world who could maybe understand all of it because it's so highly specific. And not that I don't think that research for such a small audience is important, but I wanted to start doing work that seemed to me to also provide kind of a type of public service. So I wanted to return to my roots in TV and see if I could contribute not just to the scholarly sphere, but also to the public's understanding about how music works in ads. And my contention is that music is so effective in political ads precisely for the reason that most people don't give much thought to it and how it might be swaying their opinion in ads that appeal to emotion. So is there anything that you did with Janacek and linguistics that comes to bear on your research for political ads? Uh, Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Totally (laughs) unrelated. (laughs) So you just said that music is so important because it is something that we don't normally notice. But I think that one of the things that I love that you write in your book is that you tell us what music can do that images can't. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So music's nonverbal. So it doesn't make direct attacks that could be parried. For instance, if you create an ad with a comic bassoon music that portrays your opponent as a buffoon or some kind of fool, then how does that opponent argue against that music? If you make a verbal statement asserting a negative fact about the opponent, well, you could send out fact checkers. Well, was that fact correct? Was it incorrect? You can refute it in an opposing ad and that sort of thing. But music operates on a different plane and it can't be addressed directly. I mean, what is someone supposed to do? Say, hey, you made me look funny with the music in an ad, right? One ad that was quite effective of what I'm remembering from the 2012 campaign was an Obama ad against Mitt Romney, and it was called Firms, and it was about how Romney moved uh, jobs overseas and kept his own money in Swiss bank accounts and offshore tax havens. And the ad featured Romney at a campaign event singing America the Beautiful, 
You may remember this ad. Oh, beautiful, four spacious skies. Yeah, and the images showed empty factories, and now as Romney's singing, you hear this reverb added to the music to convey the sense that the music is echoing in these empty factories where the jobs have been all outsourced and so on, and these empty office conference rooms, uh, so all these loss of jobs that he did with Bain Capital. And then you see pictures of Switzerland, Bermuda, and the Grand Caymans of these tax havens and where he has his accounts and that sort of thing. But it uses Romney's own voice against him and his own singing against him. So it's a really devastating ad because you just can't argue against any of it. And yet it really makes him look foolish. Yeah. I mean, as we've seen, even in this past presidential cycle and this past election and this past term in office that you can argue against a fact, but you can't really argue against an emotion. And I think that the music, you're right, sort of provides that emotion. That's one of the basic things that we teach when we teach film music. For me, that was definitely a really memorable ad. I mean, I think, you know, to me, what made it the most effective was you're you're taking this patriotic song that everybody learns at kids and you, uh, you know, singing it flag day and around the campfire. um, And then it becomes distorted in a way with all these just very depressing images. You, you can't sort of view that as somebody who knows that song and not have that impact you in some way emotionally. And it really did make it effective. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought so too. Yeah, I agree with both of you on, on, on all of those points. Uh, I would just add one other thing that, that occurs to me. It might also in some people's minds have brought up the positive association that some people would have had with Obama singing that Al Green song. And he actually did a really good job with it. Uh... And here here you have Mitt Romney singing this off-key version of American. Yeah, it definitely played into that idea of Obama as this kind of smooth operator and, you know, Mitt Romney of the mom genes. I remember that being a huge (laughs) thing against him. It's interesting that even in, in the moment when he burst into the song, there was just to sort of think of the ease with which Obama crooned Al Green and then just sort of the the level of awkwardness when Mitt Romney began singing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to listen to even just not the distorted version of Mitt Romney singing that and then sort of thinking back to Obama at the Apollo and not sort of seeing that difference in musical competency, which, you know, maybe people by extension, um, you know, sort of uh, look at it more broadly as, as a type of um, political competency as well. The Sandman did not come out. So you talk a lot about film music in your book. How do the ads use ideas and techniques that have been developed in film music? I talk a pretty good deal about uh, Reagan's 1984 Morning in America ad as being a, a real watershed and having a cinematic character itself. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. At this time in 1984, sound systems were getting better on TVs, and there was a possibility of ad creators tapping into that a little bit and creating music that's not as flat as it had been maybe in the 70s in political ads, but really warmer, more lush orchestrations. They can look forward with confidence to the future. And so Morning in America fits the bill quite a bit in that way. 
And there was nothing like that ad that had ever been produced for the political sphere. And music was written specifically for the ad, and it fits the ad like a glove. You can think of some other political ads where the music is clumsily spliced on or a cadence is thrown in on the end, so it sounds as though the music ends that way, but it really doesn't. But in this way, the music was written for the ad. And so it fits it perfectly. And this closely mic'd uh, avuncular voice of Hal Reine as the narrator works with the music to create this really warm and inviting oral space. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan. And the orchestral music is similar to old Hollywood scores like Max Steiner, Elmer Bernstein, uh, that sort of thing. So it's a very cinematic scope both orally with these sweeping orchestral gestures and and these modulations to remote keys and then also with the images uh, it's just very cinematic is the best term i think for it going back to what Naomi said earlier you also mentioned in your book 2004 being another watershed year for political ads could you talk a little bit about that ad windsurfing which unlike the morning in america which you described as having newly composed music, uh, windsurfing makes use of a tune everybody already knows and loves. Could you talk a little bit about how the use of pre-existing music and ad might generate a different kind of meaning than when you hear music that nobody has heard of before until that ad? Right. So yeah, pre-existing music is obviously going to have associations for people completely outside of the political sphere. And you can't always control that, except that sometimes a certain music has a uh, particular associations, like if you use operatic music, it might be associated in some people's minds with sort of an elite audience or intellectual audience, something like that. With windsurfing, I think it's such a good ad because they took this photo opportunity that John Kerry had done of where he's windsurfing, I think it's by by Martha's Vineyard, and I think he, he wanted to seem more relatable to people, and so he was out windsurfing, which is maybe not exactly the most relatable activity he, he could well, be doing. It's um, right up there so with he, golf and equestrian, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, polo or whatever. Yeah, so, and then it was an easy ad to make in the sense that it wouldn't have been hard at all for the, for the ad makers to take this video of him windsurfing and then literally flip it over. So he's going from one direction, like to the to the left of your screen, and then he's going to the right of your screen, and then he's going to the left of your screen, and so on, because he had been labeled by the Republicans as a flip-flopper. And he fed into that when he said, I voted for that bill until I voted against it, or I voted against it uh, before I voted for it, or whatever. And so he had that reputation already as a flip-flopper, and this fed into it perfectly, because here he's going one direction, then he's going the other one. In which direction would John Kerry lead? Kerry voted for the Iraq War, opposed it, supported it, and now opposes it again. And the structure of the music of the Blue Danube that plays in the background is perfect because it's like question, answer, call, response. So it's like he's going the one direction and then he goes the other and then he goes the other. And it's just so incredibly effective as an ad. Now, I, I was mentioning earlier about music being clumsily spliced on at the end. The ending is very clumsily done on that ad, but nevertheless, it was extremely effective, and, and it had a pretty high recall among voters after the election. That means when, when voters were asked, do you remember this ad, they definitely remembered windsurfing as, as one of the ads, it's sort of a comical mocking ad of, of Kerry. 
Sure. And that's so much a tune that everyone knows. I guess, you know, sort of being a waltz, it's already something that's associated with uh, frivolity and and fancy and and sort of pairing that with Carrie doing the sport that's associated with elitism makes the music all the more effective in that context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are some ads that we've just talked about that use candidates against themselves, right? So we had Romney talking or Romney singing America the Beautiful. We have Carrie windsurfing. I can also think of Michael Dukakis and the tank and (laughs) the disaster that that was. Is this a recent phenomenon or is this something that has always been part of political advertising? Well, it's always been part, but I, I definitely noticed a huge trend starting around the 2008 election where candidates' words, and in the case of firms, Romney singing, uh, but using the candidates' words against them. One of the Obama ads, to pick another example, is the 47% comment that Romney made oh, that was a, against him. That was yeah. a devastating ad. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I've noticed that that's been pretty common 2008 until now. It's been a, a fairly common trope to use the opponent's words against them because, you know, they did say that. So they can't argue that they didn't say that. And then it's, it's always about how you frame something, isn't it? You know, and so they present something in, in, in a negative light, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so if this is a recent phenomenon, what did political ads sound like in the beginning? Like, what, what do some of the really early political ads sound like? I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like I, I like I, everybody likes I for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum. Yeah, so the very early ads like I Like Ike from 1952, which, by the way, was produced by Disney for free with 59 people working on it. It's an absolutely amazing ad. Uh, get a chance to check that out. Um, uh, yeah, so I Like Ike is a, is a jingle. It's, it's basically a jingle which is absolutely of a piece of product commercial jingles that they had at the time, like Pepsodent, uh, if you'll remember, uh, you'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent, right? <laughs> right? Well or Jell-O, th- those types of ones where they have the jingles that's a very similar to those early ads. And then I have to laugh a little bit when I think of this really extremely successful I Like Ike ad, and then Adley Stevenson's response to that was, I love the Gov. Yeah, I watched those two ads. They were <laughs> diametrically opposed. The I Like Ike one is charming. It is so well done. And it just gets stuck in your head and you just want to be part of that march. And that I love the Gov one is so awkward. I'd rather have a man with a hole in his shoe than a hole in everything he says. I'd rather have a man who knows what to do when he gets to be the prez. I love the Gov, the governor of Illinois. It's just really cringy, isn't it? (laughs) It's, I, mean, I think that you're right. It's sort of too intimate. Can you expand on that a little? Oh, sure, yeah. So there's a, a lady dressed in evening wear, you know, black uh, evening dress and, and pearls, and she's singing, I love the gov, the governor of Illinois. Adley, love you madly. And what you did for your own great state, you're going to do for the rest of the 48. And it's just, it, it's a really personal, intimate kind of a, singing directly to the voter and and it's really as you put it awkward and and cringy cause listen to what he had to say i know that on election 
someday We're gonna choose the God that we love He is the God nobody can shove we'll make Not to mention the fact that I Like Ike works really well, but I love the gov. I mean, just, I mean, it's like they're trying too hard, you know? It sounds very Cole Porter. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, those those types of jingles, that that was how, how the music uh, started out, it, you know, and into the 60s, there's the Kennedy, Kennedy jingle, which is also, you know, very much a... Kennedy, 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 now, it's interesting when we talk about that Stevenson thing, it, it, it really is. Those ads are from, what, 52? And so they're, they sound like, the music sounds like it could have come from, I don't know, 19, 1938, 1939. They're very out of date. I mean, it sounds like a, a sort of pre-Rodgers and Hammerstein Cole Porter. It's very interesting. Yeah, it it doesn't sound as up to date as uh, some of the other music that was being done. When I think of something like how kind of cool the theme was to the Third Man when that came out in 1949, the zither sound. I think, oh, that's that's really cool. It's it's different. It it sounds uh, exotic and so on and and, and cool and up to date. Uh, then you see something like I like Kaiken. It really does sound like a throwback. <laughs> It's interesting that quite a few of the ads that we've mentioned here really sort of rely on music to sort of build this kind of nostalgia, like what Naomi has suggested with the Adelaide ad with sort of the Cole Porter feel and the the Kennedy Kennedy wander. Even if you take Morning in in America, uh, the music sort of helps to sort of support the nostalgia that's in the images there as well. Why do you think sort of creating nostalgia in the ads is a particularly effective strategy? Oh, that's a great thought. Yeah. I guess when you're thinking of your target demographics in any ad that you create, but in a political ad, just as the same as a product commercial, I mean, if I'm thinking of a product commercial, I might be thinking, okay, who has disposable income? They're probably of a certain age. So if I put in a a musical allusion to a Broadway show from in the 1940s or something, uh, I might click, you know, in a few minds, of people who would have the disposable income to buy my product, right? And and similarly with, with political ads, I might skew somewhat to an older demographic, and in that way, if I'm trying to evoke a nostalgic feeling, then that would make them feel a little more comfortable, something from their childhood or their adolescence, a world that they might feel more comfortable with than the current world. Sure. Well, and of course, I mean, the whole make America great again, you know, a lot of President Trump's strategy relied on a similar sort of looking backward to this sort of presumed more peaceful past, if you will. Right, exactly. And, and, and then one always has to think, too, if America was great for everyone back then. So that's... Of course. <laughs> so you identify three years as landmarks in political advertising in your book. We've already talked about two of them, 1984 and 2004, but there's one more. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 1968. So I see these as, as watersheds, 1968, 1984, and 2004, of ad campaigns that really changed the game. And they're all Republican campaigns. So the 1968 one was about anger, and it was about Vietnam, and Nixon's ads played this up really effectively. There's one ad called Convention that featured images of a smiling Hubert Humphrey juxtaposed with images of riot and police violence at the Chicago Democratic Convention that year, as well as images from the Vietnam War. So it almost looks as though Humphrey is smiling at all this violence. I mean, it, it's really a, 
kind of a devious ad. The music was an instrumental version of Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight with this added distortion. So it's unpleasant to listen to, as well as these really violent images. It's a very uncomfortable ad to watch, this convention ad. And another one from Nixon was the first civil right in which Nixon himself speaks over highly dissonant music to say forcefully that he will have order in the American streets at all costs. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. And I might call these like the Nixon anger ads, but they really had their basis in the 1964 campaign of Barry Goldwater. Uh, He has extremely angry ads. In fact, I think a lot of people were put off by the campaign. It was just such a strident campaign. These ads are very, very dark and angry ads that Goldwater had in 1964. So I think Nixon is kind of refining that a little bit in 1968. So if I can just interrupt for a second, why do you think it worked in 68, but not in 64? Well, it's hard to say exactly, obviously. But maybe in some people's minds, LBJ had just taken over after JFK's assassination. He hadn't had a real chance to completely settle into his new position. He had managed to get the Civil Rights Act passed. He had the Voting Rights Act ahead of him in 65. So it, it was a little bit of time, and maybe in some people's minds they wanted to give LBJ a chance to have a full term. That's probably part of it, but definitely uh, Barry Goldwater was seen by a lot of people sort of in a mainstream way as an extreme character, one who you might not want to have his finger hovering over the button you know, when we're talking about nuclear annihilation. So uh, he was seen as an extreme character. So I think the ads just fed into that idea of extremity. Well, and LBJ had a really devastating ad against Goldwater, didn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah, Daisy was an incredible ad. So it features this girl counting these petals off of a flower, and she's counting them and, you know, making mistakes as she's counting and not getting the numbers in order. So it's very cute and very endearing as she's doing that. And then the film stops, and then she just looks off into the distance, and then you hear this countdown. And it's, you know, this nuclear destruction threat that is very much to the fore there. And Tony Schwartz, the guy who wrote the responsive chord, was the sound guy who made the sound in there. And the sound is very powerful. Even though there's no music in that ad per se, the sound is extremely effective. So bring us back to 1984. Sure. So if 68 was an anger campaign, revolutionizing ads in that negative way, then maybe more toward a positive direction was the 1984 campaign, the so-called Morning in America campaign of Reagan, uh, which is more of a patriotism and satisfaction year in my mind. And it was different because Madison Avenue executives grouped together and called themselves the Tuesday team, worked for free for the Reagan campaign to create these really slick and highly polished ads. And it is really not an exaggeration to say that these ads taken as a whole and specifically the Morning in America ad, revolutionized political advertising, and there was no going back after that. And they really raised the bar quite a bit on the production of political advertising. And then the last one I point to is the 2004, which I would talk about as a fear year. Uh, It's the first post-9-11 election, and the Bush campaign played this up brilliantly. In an increasingly dangerous world, even after the first terrorist attack on America. John Kerry and the Liberals in Congress... They produced several frightening ads. Some of them showed terrorists. Some of them made a more mythological appeal to wolves as, you know, terrorist cells. 
there's a famous ad called Wolves from that year. And then the music that you have in the background for these ads would not be out of place in a horror film. And weakness attracts And they worked to generate fear, and they did so quite effectively with this subtle musical underscoring. So we've gone quite a ways from these jingles of 1952, 56, 1960 to this subtle underscoring, and especially where you've got a better sound system as you're watching a TV, you can hear this, this rumbling, this really low drone, this rumbling. And as a viewer's watching, I imagine a viewer feeling uncomfortable and maybe not knowing why they feel uncomfortable. And it's just from this rumbling, this low drone, and these unpleasant and highly dissonant synthetic strings playing. It can be really terrifying music. Yeah, no, it, it's something that's really powerful when you watch a horror movie. You know, you turn the sound off of a horror movie and it's not scary anymore. But you turn the sound on, particularly that bass. I'm really glad that you mentioned that low drone because that really just shakes your bones. And sometimes you don't even know why. It's a, it's a tremendously effective tactic. I mean, really, the Nixon ad that you cited earlier, the first civil right, I mean, the underscore to that, I mean, it, it almost sounds like a Bernard Harmon score for like a Hitchcock film. Like it really does use a lot of that same sort of musical language in it, which I think is, you know, obviously, like as Naomi has suggested, really effective in kind of getting you to feel emotional about what you're seeing on the screen. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really well-taken point. When I think of Bernard Herrmann and uh, music for Psycho or North by Northwest and, and these really short musical motives and that First Civil Right uses these short motives, but put together in this highly dissonant way that you might imagine Herrmann doing. Yeah, that's a, a great point. So we've talked about music and political ads in the past, where do you see it changing in the future? Do you see a trend that is continuing or do you see a break coming? Well, I feel that it's always hard to predict the future. And as a music historian, I, I'm loath to predict the future. It's hard to say uh, where things are going per se. I can say that this idea of using uh, an opponent's words against him or her, there seems to be no indication that that's letting up anytime soon. So that seems to be one way in which it would go, and to the extent that music is involved in that, that might continue on. But it would be hard for me to say. I wonder if we might see an official Songify ad from one of the campaigns, because you see these on the internet all the time, of people taking a speech or a debate or something like that and turning it into something a little bit more musical. Oh, yeah, that's, that is definitely... A direction that things could be moving in for sure. Yeah. Havana, Havana. Woke up with that. How you doing? When he came in, he said, "Is a lot of girls can do with, but I can't without you." Yeah, those the sort of uh, user-generated content uh, ads for sure. Now you do wonder if going forward, the people that are creating these advertisements look at what people are creating on YouTube and what's getting a lot of hits and if they might try to deploy the same sort of aesthetic and some sort of official capacity. Be interesting to see it happen. Oh, do you mean like a, sort of an ersatz, oh, this was a crowdsourced ad, but it, not really? You mean in that way? So no, I mean, just you see like a lot of very creative ways of using music as a means of commenting on candidates on video sharing sites, specifically YouTube is the one I have in mind. So I do sort of wonder if people that work in advertising sort of see what is the public doing on these sort of unofficial forums in terms of how they're using music. And, you know, I wonder if they see which videos got how many hits and then, you know, try to incorporate that sort of video aesthetic and that sort of musical aesthetic in sort of official ads. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, I would be surprised if those 
campaign operatives aren't really plugged into what's going on in popular culture with YouTube and with Twitter and everything and certain things that are that are getting a lot of hits or getting a lot of buzz. Yeah. What I predict will happen and what Trump, I think, did really well in 2016 is that he just sort of gave his supporters a number of different options, memes, images, even some music out there to kind of recompose as they wanted to. And so you would see tons and tons of collections of Trump paraphernalia or Trump memes and music and so on all squashed together into these music videos or into these memes online. And I'm wondering if maybe that will be what political advertising looks like going forward as kind of a collection of signifiers that the campaigns push out to the public. And then the public kind of creates the ads off of that, because that seems quite efficient and a great way to save money, to be honest. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, that certainly makes sense to me as, as a way things could be going. So in other words, as you're setting it, the campaigns themselves would have a lot less control over how they've had it uh, in the past when you had three channels, you know, and, and you would get on network television and there were only three channels to watch and you bought ad time and, and, and the campaigns could have a lot more control of the message. And here you kind of put things out there and then, and then hopefully people from your base, let's say, will go out there and then create their own content and then and that. Although, as I mentioned, it, it can cut both ways because you can have people on the other side using those images and those words against that candidate. Yeah, we saw that with Obama, right? Particularly in images. I, I don't really know if there was any music, but we had that fabulous Obama Hope poster that got repackaged by various portions of the electorate. But we also saw Obama's guns and religion quote get repackaged by various portions of the electorate in a way that wasn't so flattering. There's also that great ad. I, I don't remember the name of it, but it basically showed Obama in various moments of leisure, uh, wearing 3D glasses, drinking a beer. And it set that song, I believe it's called Oh Yeah. It was um, used quite prominently in the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off, oh, um, yeah. which I, I thought was actually really effective at taking this song from this very iconic pop culture film and then sort of showing uh, Obama's lighter side, but framing it as a negative. I thought uh, the music is really what made that ad very effective. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I'm not remembering that that particular one right now, but it sounds, the way you describe it, uh, incredibly effective. One, one that I do remember from that campaign was, I think it was 2008, uh, the celebrity one that McCain ran against him and Obama as a celebrity, as if he's one of these celebrities not to be taken too seriously. He's just an actor in a way, that type of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just to pull back for a second, do you think this kind of advertising is good for our national politics? Well, ultimately, um, I wrote this book not out of admiration for the ability of political machines to manipulate people into voting against their best interests, though one cannot be but amazed at the subtlety and the nuance of uh, these musical appeals, but rather because I see the use of music and political advertisements as a corrosive force on democracy. And it's, it's not that I don't like music. On the contrary, it's that I value music so much that I despair to see it debased in the service of these crass political interests. I, I just don't understand why we need to have music when we're watching these ads that are supposed to be about something so important as democracy. In fact, even the idea of calling it an ad, you know, advertising for something as if we're trying to get someone to buy our arguments just as they would buy our products. I would just like to see talking heads discussing their records and their policies and just leave it at that. I, I don't see 
that it will ever go in that direction. But I think, in a sense, you're sort of pointing towards a larger philosophical question here that actually, you know, would really have quite a ripple effect in that you know, you're talking about music and ads. But, you know, clearly in the 21st century, campaigns are so saturated by music. I think there's so many different contexts where candidates are using music as a tool of persuasion. So then the question becomes, like, where should music be allowed and not allowed? It also sort of begs the broader question of, who has ownership over music? Who has authorship over music? I mean, sort of, you know, once artists put it out there, now we sort of have the tools to sort of create and recreate it in so many different ways that it just sort of presents challenges if one were to say, okay, we're going to kind of scale back and not use music in this sort of, you use the word like surreptitious way. I mean, where do you draw the line? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, I was just uh, dreaming of what my possible <laughs> utopia would be, politically speaking, uh, just only because of the ways in which music can sometimes be used to get voters to vote against their political and economic interests, where, where music is fo- kind of fooling them in a way. And that's kind of what I wish we could get away from. I, I don't see that happening. Well, there's too much money in it, certainly, but there's too much untapped potential that you can get uh, for uh, these emotional appeals. You'd ask people sometimes after an election, why did you vote for this candidate and that candidate? And then say, well, I went with my gut. You know, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, just feel more comfortable with this one. You know, people talk about, you know, well, I'd go out for a beer with Bush, but I'd, you know, trust Gore more or whatever. But, you know, that type of thing where, where it's kind of this emotional appeal and the music can feed a lot into this emotional. There have been a number of books. Uh, one of them I'm thinking about right now is the Drew Weston book on the role of emotion. The political, political brain, thinking. right? Yeah, the political brain, exactly, where um, emotion is a lot more involved in political decision-making than some of us would like. And so that's just my sort of utopian vision, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's realistic. But I do think you know, what I really appreciated about your book is certainly a very informative book. It was entertaining in a lot of ways as well, but it's also educational in a sense that I think for people that read that book, then they do begin to have a better understanding of how sound persuades us. And I mean, that's certainly with Naomi and I with the goal of Tracks on the Trail is that, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to change pop culture sort of playing such a huge role in campaigns and music being part of that. But, you know, we can encourage people to develop a more critical approach to understanding sound. And I think your book very much accomplishes that. I mean, as someone who studies campaign music but hasn't focused that much on ads, now I know that I'm going to look at ads more critically simply, you know, because your work has informed me on how to do so. Now, I think that, that what Dana said is absolutely key because obviously we can't ban music and ads. That would be a terrible idea. And that would be extraordinarily anti-democratic. But what we can do is, and as you have done in your book, is give people the tools to really understand what they are seeing and more importantly, to understand what they're hearing. Because I feel like we teach our students, both in elementary school and secondary education and post-secondary education, how to unpack visual images, but we're not very good at talking about sound. And I think that's one of the things that your book does really well is gives people the tools to think about sound critically and how sound is affecting them. And that is, at least for me, the first line of defense against being manipulated like this. Thank you. Uh, that's spoken like uh, you're uh, both my best uh, public relations. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you so much. Uh, no, that's very kind of you to say. I, I feel like that's really kind of what it, maybe what I'm trying to say a little bit is that, yeah, no, we're not going to be banning music, and even if that were possible. But the idea of, of giving people the tools to I'm not even saying 
to give them the tools that they can understand all of the ways that music is working on them. But for them to realize, whoa, there's a lot going on here under the surface that I really don't understand. So if I just realize that they're trying to get at me with these emotional appeals, then that's going to go a long way toward making me a bit more immune to them. So just to wrap up, just for fun, what's your favorite ad that you've come across in your research? Favorite ad? Um, well, I can tell you one of the weirdest ones. Oh, go for that one. <laughs> I don't know about um, a favorite. Uh, one of the weirdest ones was the mother and child ad, which is for the 1968 uh, Humphrey campaign. And there we see a woman on screen holding a baby. And she's wondering how safe her baby would be under a Nixon presidency. What's going to happen to him? I hope he won't be afraid the way we are. Her mouth is not moving, so she can't be the woman who's speaking and doing this worrying. And then we hear a humming of this melody in G minor, this, this kind of lullaby folk melody. So she's not humming and she's not speaking. And it's, it's a very odd, uncanny feeling that you get from watching this ad. It's, it's as if there are three women around this baby, you know, one speaking, one's humming, and one's holding the baby. It's, it's a very odd ad. And then at the very end, because it was of this time, you know, 1968, the male actor comes in to seal the deal. Hubert Humphrey has said that every American has the right to a decent and safe... Uh, and then we have the actor E.G. Marshall coming in and closes the deal about, you know, you need to vote for Humphrey and not for, and not for Nixon. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Well, fabulous to be here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Once again, Paul's book is Orchestrating Public Opinion, How Music Persuades in Television Political Ads for U.S. Presidential Campaigns, 1952-2016, from Amsterdam University Press. The Tracks on the Trail podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia College Department of Music and WRGC 88.3 FM. Tracks on the Trail was created by Dana gorzellini Mostak and is co-edited by Naomi Graber and James DeVille. Haley Strasberger and Sarah Griffin provide research assistance. Today's program was edited by Daniel McDonald. You can visit us anytime at www.tracksonthetrail.com. That's T-R-A-X on the trail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter or Pinterest, and listen out for more podcasts on soundcloud.com backslash WRGC.